today we are continuing our series called Letters. And uh, for those of you that maybe haven't been with us, what we've been doing is for the last couple of weeks is looking at this one specific letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the four different churches in the region of Galatia, Turkey that he had started, but then many years later found out that they had gotten off track. They are now following a false gospel. And so Paul sits down and he starts to write a letter to them of, okay, here's what the gospel really is all about. And what we've discovered is that the, the gospel is the good news that Jesus died on the cross. Jesus rose again from the dead. Jesus forgives us not only of just the penalty of our sin, but then he gives us power over our sin as well. So Paul does this whole thing of here's what the gospel is. And then he also tells what the gospel isn't. And part of the big controversy that they had at the time was they were saying, look, you still have to follow all the Old Testament laws and rules and regulations that God had given. It isn't just faith alone in Jesus. You have to follow these 613 commands. Specifically, they were most concerned about the guys, the, the Gentiles, the, the non-Jews that had become followers of Jesus. They were concerned about these guys getting circumcised. And Paul comes along, he's like, no, 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 it's, it's Jesus and Jesus alone that is what makes us right with God. Now, last week then we looked at, okay, well, what is the purpose of God's commands then? Why do we have rules that we're to, to follow and obey? What, what's that all about? And what we discovered is that in the, the New Covenant, the, the New Testament, there are various things that we have that are there, these rules that guide us and they lead us and they help, help to offer protection to us. And so they are very, very important. And what we discovered a couple weeks ago is that in the second half of this letter, Paul's going to put a huge emphasis on the role of the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's what we're going to look at here this morning is what is the, the role of the Spirit? Why is it vital that you have the Spirit working in your life? So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to begin with verse 21. Again, Galatians 4, 21 is where we'll be at today. As you're turning there, let me remind you that Paul keeps using Abraham from the Old Testament as an example of what true faith really looks like. Remember, Abraham was the guy that had been promised by God that through you, a great nation's going to start, and through your child, one day all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, Abraham was very, very old at the time, and he and his wife Sarah, they didn't have any children of their own, but yet they believed the promise of God that one day they were going to have this child, and all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And Paul says it was credited to them as righteousness. In other words, they were made right with God because of the faith that they had. And Paul says, look, that's the type of faith you need to have. That you're looking back at what Jesus did there on the cross and you have faith in that. That he lived a perfect and sinless life. That he died on the cross. That he rose again from the dead. And that is what makes you right with God. And so he gives this, uh, again, as a, an example. But what he's going to do today is use Abraham as an example again, but this time with a mistake that Abraham and Sarah made. And he says, you Galatians are making the exact same mistake, and quite frankly, I believe that here in 2019, oftentimes we make the same type of mistake. So let's jump right into the uh, story here. Galatians 4, 21 to 23, we read this. Paul writes, some of you would like to be under the rule of the law of Moses, but do you know what the law says? The scriptures say that Abraham had two sons, one from his slave wife and one from his freeborn wife. The son of the slave wife was born in a fleshly human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. But the son of the freeborn wife was born as God's own fulfillment of his promise. Now, in case you're not familiar with the story, 
God had come to Abraham and Sarah and said, look, you're going to have this child. But they were old. Didn't have any children. They biologically shouldn't have been able to have any children. But yet, again, they, they believed. They had faith. But what we fail to recognize oftentimes is from the time they were given the promise until the time their son Isaac was actually born was 15 years. Now, if you're newlyweds and you're in your 20s, waiting 15 years, that's a long time, right, to have a child. But they're in their 80s, and they're promised a child. So that seems like an eternity. And so Sarah goes to Abraham one day, and she's like, honey, sit down. I, we, we need to talk. She's like, it's obvious I'm not going to be able to provide a child for you. I'm old. I, I'm, I'm barren. And so I, I tell you what, my, my assistant, Hagar, the, you, know, you, you know who I'm talking about? The, the hot one, the, the, the nice-looking one there? Why don't you sleep with her and have a child through her? She could be our, our surrogate mother. That way this promise of God can come true. Now, I want you to notice, Sarah still had faith that God's promise was going to come true, that, that through their child, that one day all the nations of the earth would be blessed. She still had faith for that. But she decided that, you know what, we need to do it in our own way. We need to come up with our own plan because obviously what God has, has been promising isn't coming true, so we, we've got to make it happen. Paul says that was a, a scheme of the flesh. They decided to, to make the promise come true in the way they wanted it to come true, to fulfill it themselves. Now, interestingly enough, Abraham does not object to his wife saying, why don't you sleep with the secretary here? <laughs> and sure enough, Hagar gives birth to a son by the name of Ishmael. Ishmael would go on to father a nation, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit but it was not the nation that God had in mind. Paul's point here was simply this, that the Galatians were doing the same thing, making the same mistake that Abraham and Sarah had made of trying to fulfill God's promise in their own way and in their own timing. They were doing this scheme of the flesh, so to speak. And so I think there's two things you and I can learn from this. The first one is this, if you're taking notes. Number one, God can bring about his promises to me better than what I can. Again, God can bring about his promises to me better than what I can. The point that Paul's going to make over the next couple of verses then is basically that, yes, Sarah was old and, and she was barren, and yes, Hagar was young and beautiful, and, and Sarah's mindset was basically this, look, she can provide the promise of God. She, she's going to be able to do this, and, and I can't do it. In, in other words, I am, I am weak, I am frail, I am nothing. But look at this young girl. She's so young, she's, she's beautiful, she'll be fruitful for you. And so God can use somebody like that, but he can't use me. And the point is simply this. God had other things in mind. And when God makes a promise, God is going to keep 
His promise, no matter how unlikely it may look. And so when it comes to you and it comes to your life, I don't care who you are, I don't care what it is that you've done, if God has made a promise to you, if you have a dream that God has given to you, if there's something that God is asking you to do, don't make the mistake of trying to make it happen in your own strength and your own power. He's made a promise. It's going to happen. So don't you try to circumvent what he has in mind. Again, God chose the one that looked like they had no potential over the one who had all the potential in the world. And the same thing is true for you and I. It's about God's spirit working in us. And so don't try a, a scheme of the flesh yourself. Listen to the Holy Spirit and then follow his plan, no matter how crazy it may seem, even as crazy as an 80-year-old woman giving birth to a son. Number two, if someone saved by grace, I will be hated by those seeking salvation by keeping the law. Ultimately, Abraham and Sarah did have their son. His name is Isaac. Fifteen years later, and in verses 28 and 29, Paul writes this. You, dear brothers and sisters, are children of the promise just like Isaac. But you're now being persecuted by those who want to keep the law, just as Ishmael, the child born by human effort, persecuted Isaac, the child born by the power of the Spirit. Ishmael, in fact, did become the father of a, a nation. And today, there are actually 50 nations on our planet that call Ishmael their spiritual father. That nation is the nation of Islam, the Muslims. Should have never have happened, except that Sarah and Abraham, through this scheme of the flesh, decided to do their own thing instead of doing God's thing. And so anytime you hear about Islamic terrorism, as we think back to 9-11, Think back to this story. Anytime you start to do things your way instead of God's way, bad things are going to happen. And so ultimately this nation of Islam, it, it, it grows through a guy by the name of Muhammad. Muhammad, he writes what's called the Quran. And the Quran, from cover to cover, says this. In order to be made right with God, it's through what you do. Your own human work, your own human effort is how you get to Allah. Exactly opposite of what Christianity teaches. In fact, every world religion other than Christianity says it's about you and how good you can be and what you can do to please God. That's how you're made righteous. That's how you're made right with Him. But none of us could ever be that good. We just simply can't. And that's why Christianity is such good news that you couldn't be good enough so God Himself did for you what you can't do. And that is He was your perfection. He was your righteousness. 
He was perfect. Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life. Jesus died on the cross so your sins could be forgiven. Again, it's not just about getting out of the penalty of your sin. Jesus now gives you the power over your sin as well. Paul writes here that anybody that thinks that it's about how good I can be, they're always going to be at battle. They're always going to be at war with us, those that believe that it's by Jesus and Jesus alone that we have our salvation. We can't rely on obedience for salvation. And so whether it was the Judaizers in Paul's day or the the Catholics in Martin Luther's day or the Muslims of today or even legalistic Christians of today, there's always going to be this this battle between those who think that's by our own good works and those of us that believe that it's by Jesus and Jesus alone. Which brings us then to Paul's conclusion of the letter. Now, let me just be honest here for a second. Paul's a pastor. So just because he starts his conclusion doesn't mean he's anywhere near done, right? (laughs) That's actually something I learned many years ago that I was like, I don't want to be a liar when I'm up preaching. So when I say in conclusion, usually within the next two minutes, we're done, right? Because I don't want to be a liar because I've been around the pastor's like, in conclusion, and it's like an hour later, right? That He's still still going on. So I don't want to lie. But uh, Paul here, I don't think he was... Uh, lying or anything, but he, he's starting to wrap up <laughs> his letter uh, to the Galatians. And uh, he keeps sort of going on. In fact, it's going to take us two more weeks to get through his conclusion here. All right. Uh, but let, let's start looking at it. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Christ has set us free. This means we really are free. Now stand firm, hold on to your freedom, and don't ever become slaves of the law again. And really, this has been his point throughout this entire letter, is that we are free. You're free from your sin. You're free from the law as well. So he says, man, don't you dare drift back into that old way of thinking. Don't drift back into that. Now, let me try to illustrate this for you, and I don't want to gross any of you out, but imagine for a second that Bill, when he was here and he was praying for us and everything, imagine that he said, in Jesus' name, amen, you may be seated, and all of a sudden he's like, and he threw up like all over the front of the stage here. Again, I don't want to gross you out, but imagine that he just, it's all there. And so I, I come out, and there it is, and I'm like, show must go on, Right? <laughs> So we'll, we'll deal with it later. I guarantee you one thing. I would not have to command you and go, now, listen to me very carefully. Bruce, listen. None of you come up here and eat that up. Don't do it. Don't even think about it. Don't you do it. Now, why would I not have to command you to do that? Because it's gross, right? I mean, even the thought of it right now is grossing some of you out. There wouldn't be any of you going, I wonder how close I can get to it without actually touching it. Right? Why? Because vomit grosses you out. And Paul's point here is, Sin needs to be the same way in your life. 
that just even the very thought of sin, just like in the same way we, we don't even have vomit here, just the thought of some vomit here on the stage grossed you out. Paul says you have been set free from that. You're not a dog. You're not a dog. You've been set free. Get away from that. Be grossed out by that. Don't you dare drift back in to that old lifestyle anymore. And so you don't need a command telling you don't eat vomit. He's like, I want you to get to the place where you're so free from sin that you don't even need a command anymore not to sin. That you so love God and you're so grossed out by your sin that you just live a completely free life. Paul says that's the kind of power that the Holy Spirit gives you. See, it used to be that sin was like a a magnet. You were just drawn right into it. But now because of the Holy Spirit living in you, you have the power to say no to that. You don't have to be drawn in. Before, it used to be that way, but no longer. Jesus set you free. That is the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of you. So Paul says, man, stand firm in the truth that you have been set free from the power of sin. Stand firm in the gospel message that God loved you so much that He came and died in your place to not only forgive you of the penalty of your sin, but to set you free, to give you the power over sin as well. Stand firm. Hold tightly onto that. Now, in the original Greek, that phrase, stand firm, is the word stecho. And it's actually a military term that means to hold your ground using no matter whatever force it may take to hold the ground that you have. Again, think of a military that they're told, you know, the the soldiers are told, stand firm, hold the ground. Don't let the enemy come through. And that's what Paul's saying here. Stecco. Hold your ground. Hold strongly to this truth. Use whatever it takes to continue to believe the good news, to believe the gospel message that you have been set free. man, don't don't drift back into that old way. The way I was thinking of this is, have you ever had a car that's like really badly out of alignment? You ever had a a car like that? That it's like you have to like grip hard onto the steering wheel there? And, And you're literally holding on and keeping it going the straight and narrow path. If you let go of the steering wheel, what happens? All of a sudden... You drift over into a ditch. You crash. And so that's what Paul's saying is, man, it, it's like you've got to hold on to that steering wheel. Hold on to the gospel. Use force if necessary. Hold on to that. But you've been set free from the power of sin. Not because of you, but because of the power of the Spirit that now lives inside of you. He says, if, if you don't do that, you're just going to drift right back into that old mindset of, 
oh, I've got to be good enough for God. And I've got to do good things. And, oh man, you know, I don't do this and I do that. And, and I'm you know, trying to please God through my own efforts. He's like, you're making that mistake of Sarah and Abraham. It's not about your human flesh. It's not about your effort. It's all about what Jesus did for you. Hold on to the true gospel message. Verse 2 then, Paul writes this. Listen, I, Paul, tell you this. If you're counting on circumcision to make you right with God, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. Again, he's saying, don't make the mistake of Abraham and Sarah. They were living according to the flesh. You're going to live by the Spirit. He says, to the people here in, in that day and time, to the circumcisers, you guys are cutting off way more than what you think. Because you're actually cutting off your relationship and your connection to God. Skip down to verse 6. He says, as far as our relationship to Christ Jesus is concerned, it doesn't matter whether you're circumcised or not. But what matters is a faith that expresses itself through what? A faith that expresses itself through, through love. And that's what God wants. He wants to produce in you a heart that is full of love. A heart that loves God and hates sin. That kind of love is not produced through a list of things that you've got to do. That kind of love is produced as you soak in the reality and the truth of the gospel message. And you allow Jesus, and you allow the Holy Spirit, you allow God the Father to start to transform you. Skip down to verse 16. Paul says, if you're guided by the Spirit, you won't obey your fleshly, selfish desires. Now in the Greek, that word fleshly is sarx. And before I get into that, let me just be clear. Paul isn't saying that the body is bad and that the soul is good. In fact, in some of his other letters, he writes that we're to use our bodies to glorify God. What he's saying here uh, by this, this uh, sarx word is it's the part of you that still desires sin. It's the part of you that still desires to do the things that you know displease God. It's the parts of you that you haven't yet submitted fully to Jesus' resurrection power in your life. And so he continues on then in verse 17 and he says, the spirit and your fleshly desires are enemies of each other. They're always fighting each other and keeping you from doing what you feel that you should. Now what Paul's going to do is he's going to go through a list of 16 different ways that we oftentimes act in the flesh. The first three are sexual in nature, the next two are about false worship, then eight relational mistakes that we make, and then the final three have to do with substance abuse. So look at verses 19 to 21. He says the acts of the flesh are what? The acts of the flesh are? They're obvious. Sexual unfaithfulness, perverted acts, and promiscuity, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, stirring up trouble, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, complaining, causing division and envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other things like it. Paul continues on, he says, let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not do what? They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now let me be very, very clear here. Paul's not talking about the occasional mess up. What he's talking about here is somebody who is habitually practicing, pursuing, desiring, and delighting in any of these sins. 
Because what he's saying is, it's pretty obvious that the Spirit is not in you. And only people that have the Spirit of God in them are eligible to go to heaven. And he says, so you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. He's like, if, if this is you, you don't have the Spirit. You may think you have the Spirit, but you don't have the Spirit. And just because you show up to church, that doesn't mean you have the Spirit. You're like, yeah, but I come every week. I don't care. Have you fully surrendered your life to Jesus? Have you believed the gospel message? And a part of believing the gospel message is that you surrender yourself. The old you dies, and there's a new you that comes to life. And so Paul goes on then, and he says, look, here are nine evidences that the Spirit truly is in you and has full control of your life. Now, Paul calls these things fruit. Look at verse 22 and then the beginning of verse 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Nine characteristics there that describe the life of a true follower. And then Paul sort of cheekily adds on to this in the, in the verse 23. He says, there is no law against behaving in any of these ways. You don't need a law that tells you to, to, to do these things. If you're truly a follower, these things will just be happening. And he's like, you know, beside the point, nobody ever goes to jail for, you know, you were too loving. We're sending you right to the slammer right now. Nobody ever yells at you and says, you just have way too much self-control. Get out of control. He says, when you have the fruit of the Spirit, you don't need a law for that. It's just going to naturally start to happen. So what, what, what can we learn from, from these two lists, and especially the last list there, the fruit of the Spirit? Three things. Number one, if I want good fruit, I must take care of the root. Listen, your job is not to produce fruit. Let me say that again. Your job is not to produce fruit. You're not to produce love. You're not to produce joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's not your job. Only the Spirit can truly bring those things about in you. You take care of the root, and the fruit will be the natural byproduct. So what does that mean? What, what is the root? What's well, our relationship with Jesus? It's the gospel. See, a lot of you think that, you know, you've got to be like, okay, this week I'm going to work on being more loving, and next week I'm going to work on being more patient, and the next week I'll, I'll work on having more self-control. And both Paul and Jesus are going, no, you don't get it yet. You can't produce those things. That's not about you. That is you trying to do something with your own flesh. You can't do that. Only the Spirit can produce those things in you. And so as you take care of that root, as you dive deeper and deeper into the Gospel message and you understand it more and more of who Jesus is and everything that He did for you, and you remind yourself of who He already says that you are, the fruit will come. 
So who does he say that you are? Well, let me just give you a couple of examples. He says, you're already righteous. You're already right with God. Not because of you, but because of what I did for you on the cross. He says, you are holy, meaning that you're set apart for God. He says, you are chosen, that you're a royal priesthood, that you are, a, as we've talked about, a full-time minister of the gospel of Christ. You're precious. You are free. You're not a slave. You're a son or a daughter of the king. You're not an orphan. You're forgiven. You are more than a conqueror. He says you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. And you see, as you continue to drive that home more and more and more into your mind and into your life and, and you start to appreciate all that He has done for you and who He says that you are, the natural byproduct of that is love and joy and peace and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Again, Paul says you don't need a law for that. You don't need to be commanded to do those things. It's just who you now are. So here's a, a practical thing I want you to start doing. Every single time you start to remind yourself of who you're not, and you have a negative thought, you're still probably going to have some of those thoughts from time to time. But as soon as you, you, you have that, Paul at one point he says, take that thought captive. Take it captive. Make it your prisoner. You don't have to be in prison to that thought anymore. Make it your prisoner. And now replace it with ten thoughts about who Jesus is and who he says that you are. Again, I guarantee you, as you start to do that, fruit is going to start to grow in you. Number two, I am only as mature as my most immature fruit. I'm only as mature as my uh, most immature fruit. I want you to notice that in the fruit of the Spirit there, Paul said the fruit of the Spirit is. He didn't say the fruits of the Spirit are. See the difference? He didn't say fruits of the Spirit. He said the fruit of the Spirit. These are not nine different things that you try to add on to your life. Remember back, I think it was in week one of the series, I talked about don't try to staple roses onto a dead rose bush. Doesn't make sense. Because the bush is dead. It has bad roots. You are not, as a follower, to say, all right, I'm going to staple on more love, and I'm going to staple on some more peace and more patience and kindness. Put your stapler away. This isn't fruits that you work on. This is a single collective fruit that will come out of you. It's one fruit. So you can't say, well, you know, I'm really loving and I have a lot of peace, but poo, boy, I just have no self-control. And, and you sort of judge that, okay, I'm doing good in this one and I'm not so good in that one. Oh, I'm really down here on that other one. If you have different levels like that, it's probably because of your natural personality. In other words, you were loving even before you became a Christian. Or you had a lot of peace even before you became a Christian. 
And so that's why I'm saying you're only as mature as your most immature fruit because it's all nine are together. And so whatever one is the least is how spiritually mature you actually are. Again, this isn't something that you're going to work on being more of any of these things. What you're going to work on is taking care of that root. Love Jesus more with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Learn how to truly love your neighbor. Understand the gospel message. The deeper and deeper you drive your roots into the gospel message, the more you're going to understand his grace and his mercy and the more his love is going to come out of you, the more his joy is going to come out, the peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control, they're all going to come out of you. It's a single fruit that comes out. So what can you do about this? Well, a lot of times, because it's like our most immature fruit is the one that's really determining where we're at spiritually, we often have a blind spot to that. And this is why being in a life group is so important. Because you need people around you that as you grow to know them and you have more and more trust with them, you need to have people that will be able to come to you and say, hey, let me tell you about this. Have you noticed this in your own life? And you're like, oh, no, I didn't even notice that was there. You need people like that in your life that you have given them permission to call out your junk. Now, obviously, that takes trust. That takes you know people you've been with for a little while. That's why there's no better time to start than now so that that trust can start to be built up. But, but you have those, those people, and you know that when they call that out, they're, they're not doing it in a mean way, but they're doing it because they love you and they care for you. And you know that they're going to pray for you and encourage you and help to hold you accountable. So all of us need relationships like that. And it doesn't have to be a bunch of people, just a handful of people that you're doing lifely deeply or doing life deeply together with. Number three then. Walking in the Spirit is the way I avoid lusts of the flesh, not vice versa. Look again at verse 16. Paul writes, If you're guarded or uh, if you're guided by the Spirit, you won't obey your fleshly selfish desires. Notice the order there. He doesn't say, avoid all your fleshly desires, then you'll have the Spirit. He says, be guided by the Spirit, and then you'll be able to avoid all the fleshly desires of the flesh. Does that make sense? You've got to have the order right here. Most people, though, they think it's the opposite way. They're like, okay, as long as I'm avoiding these particular sins, then God will want to have a relationship with me. But he's saying, you start a relationship with me, and then I will guide you in the way that you need to go. And the reason this is important that we get the order right is that you yourself do not have the power over sin. You yourself cannot say no to sin. You need his power in order to do that. See, your, your desire is just way too strong. In the, in the Greek, the, the word for desire means to have a, a craving so immensely strong that you feel like uh, that you're going to die without it. 
it's sort of like if, if you're underwater, eventually you start to have a, a craving, if you will, a desire for oxygen, air. And you're like, if I don't get this, I am going to, I'm going to die, and I will do anything to get air. And Paul says, look, the cravings and the desires you have for sin are like that. That's how powerful they are. That it's like you gasping for air. You want to sin. And you know, and unless you're like, you know, the mafia guys got a hold of you and put, you know, concrete blocks on your feet or something, you will struggle to get back to get the air. You're gonna find it one way or another. You'll do everything in your strength to get there. And Paul's saying, look, that's how your desire for sin is. You will do whatever it takes in order to sin. That's just human nature. But what Jesus came to do, keep saying this week after week, he didn't come just to free you from the penalty of your sin. He came to give you power over your sin. You won't have those cravings. You won't have those desires. Oh, sure, there'll still be temptation that's there. But as I said earlier, it used to be it was like a magnet. You just sort of had to do it. And, and like I just said with air, that if you're underwater, man, you, you're going to do whatever you can to, to get to it. Paul says, look, that, that power, that isn't there anymore. You're free from that. That's not because of you. It has to do with His Spirit living in you. You know, oftentimes people come to me and they'll say, Gilbert, I, I just can't seem to overcome this sin. It's just too strong in my life. Well, here's the reality. It's not that the sin is too strong. It's that your faith is too weak. Your relationship with Jesus is too weak. You need more of His presence in your life. See, this is why I tell you all the time, Christianity isn't about rules and regulations and rituals and, and various things like that. It's all about a relationship with Jesus. And just like any relationship, the best way to grow a relationship is through good communication. How does God communicate to us? Right here, he wrote us a love letter. How do we communicate back to him? Prayer. So the more you're talking to him, the more he's talking to you, the more you're building that relationship, the more you're driving those roots deep into the gospel message, the more your life is going to be changed, the more you're going to be set free from, again, the penalty of sin and the power of sin as well. So here's what I want you to do. Instead of you going, I need to be more loving. I need to be more peaceful. I need to be more patient. I need to be more all nine characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. Instead of you saying that, I want you to start instead, as you're praying, remind yourself that Jesus is love. Jesus is joy. Jesus is peace. Jesus is patient. Right on through the list. And then I want you to even make it even more personal than that. That Jesus was those things for me. Jesus was love for me. He loved me so much, in fact, that he died on the cross for me. 
Jesus was joyful for me. Remember, there's a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness has to do with your circumstances. Joy is an attitude of the Spirit. Jesus had joy for me, even though his circumstances, I mean, the, the cross was horrible. But his joy for me was so great that he endured the cross. And just keep going right through that list. Jesus was love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Jesus had self-control for me. On the cross, he could have called down legions of angels to come and save him, but he had self-control to say, no, I've got to go through with this because I love them so much. I'm going to die in their place. And what will happen is you continue to reflect on who Jesus is for you. All of a sudden, a reminder will come that, wait a second, the same spirit that he has lives in me. And so if Jesus could be love, then I can be love. If Jesus could be joyful, I can be joyful. If he could have peace, I can have peace right on through the list. But again, this isn't something that that you work on doing. This is something that is given to you. It's the proof of your salvation. It's the proof that you really understand the gospel message. That people should be able to look at you and go, wow, look at the change in them. Look how loving they are and joyful and peaceful and patient, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control they have. Man, I wish I had that. How, how did you do it? And your answer is, I didn't. Jesus did. Jesus was all those things for me. And he died on the cross to not only forgive me, but to give me the power over sin as well. And so if you're here today and you're like, man, I'm struggling with something. I can't seem to overcome this. Drive those roots deeper and deeper and deeper into the gospel and remember Jesus' words. It is finished. To Telestai, it's done. The debt is paid in full. You are forgiven and now you're set free. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just this incredible letter that Paul wrote to the Galatian church that we're able to read now 2,000 years later that just so helps to inspire us in our own faith. And Lord, I, I pray that it's been a thing that has been setting us free in, in just so many ways that we're appreciating what the true gospel message is about, that it's literally we are nothing. And we can't be good enough to earn our salvation and... and, and Lord, we don't have to do anything to, to try to, to please you. Because if we're in a relationship with you, then your commands will not be burdensome. We won't even need your commands because just your fruit will naturally come out of us. We're declared righteous in your sight. So Lord, help us to get out of the way. Help us not to have our own schemes of the flesh like Abraham and Sarah did. But to each and every day 
lean more and more and more into who it is that you are, all that it is that you're doing in our lives, and have faith of the promise of what you want to do yet. Help us to remember that when we're weak, your spirit is strong in us. What an incredibly freeing message that is. Now help us to live in the reality of that. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.